Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. We're going to be doing a class on a collection of points by Joe Sims. And before we do that, I'm going to have Angela give a brief background as to who Joe Sims is, as well as what Political Affairs is, because little excerpts that we're going to be reading from were published in Political Affairs. Let me first go to Lenin. We start with Lenin. We always do. Lenin said that there are lines of demarcation, separation between different groups on the left who claim that they speak for the working class. And he said we have to have polemics with them. The word is polemics, P-O-L-E-M-I-C-S, which many young people probably never heard of, that word. But it's a very important word. We have to have a discussion of what they stand for and what do we stand for. So Joe Sims is the leader of the CPUSA as of a year ago, a year and a half ago. Him and another person called Rosanna uh, Camion, something like that, her last name is. And they are the co-chairs of the CPUSA, which was originally a party that thrived from 1919 onward under the international leadership of Comrade Stalin. You look at them today, and you'll see where they have descended to from the days of the Russian Revolution, Joseph Stalin, and the Communist International, and you see where they are today. So they claim, they're telling the new people that are coming into their party that they've changed since Sam Webb left their party about five years ago that they changed, they're now Marxist-Leninist, they're this, they're that, they're revolutionary. This is what they're telling the young people. So the people's school decided to go back and get it from the horse's mouth. Not what we're saying they're saying, but what they're saying they're saying. This was 2008, not that long ago, when Joe Sims wrote a series of articles on their theoretical magazine called Political Affairs. Political Affairs was the name they chose when Earl Browder changed the party's direction. I'm not gonna say he dissolved the party, he never did. He dissolved the organization from a party of a Leninist new type. He changed it to an association. Everything else stayed the same, the clubs, the newspaper, Political Affairs was the name he gave to the magazine that used to be called The Communist. So in 1924, the CPUSA organized a political magazine called The Communist that was changed in 1943 to Political Affairs. They took away the term communist because the organization was no longer a party. It was now called Communist Political Association and they took political affairs. When they went back to being a party in 1944 or 45, the struggle that went on and they became a party again, they kept the name political affairs. So from 1944, 45 to a couple of years ago, it was called political affairs. It was their theoretical magazine, not just a magazine, but the magazine to tell you their ideology. We're now taking each of these positions. We want everyone to hear what he's saying. 
so that we can go out armed ideologically in polemics against members of the CPUSA whenever we come in contact with them, either in person or on the Internet. I was in the old party for 40 years. I know Joseph. Now they put him in the leadership. So now we have to look at him extra carefully. I know Joe Sims personally in the party. I don't know him personally outside of the party. He's about 10 years younger than I am, maybe more. He's delved in acting, in theater, on a low level. Ideologically, he was a protege of Sam Webb, a protege of John Bechtel in that group. After 91, were not interested in the Soviet Union at all. That was their position. Quote, unquote, young people that are coming into the party were not born when the Soviet Union was around, so we're not going to waste our time. That's the quote from John Bechtel, who was the leader of the CPUSA for a couple of years. After Sam Webb left and joined the Democratic Party. I don't know if anybody knows that. So now Joe Sims at the last Congress, which they call a convention, Joe Sims and Rosanna from the West Coast will put in positions of chair of the party. I don't believe they even use the term general secretary anymore. They got rid of that. So I think they act as co-chairs, which I thought is interesting. What would Lenin say or anyone else to that idea of getting rid of the general secretary? Just like they got rid of the term Politburo, they got rid of the term Central Committee, they put American terms, and now they go in full circle, and they've gone to this position. He came in about a year or two ago, and under the guise that things are going to change now. Sam Webb is gone, we're going to change now, and now we're going to start talking about Marxism-Leninism. That was the guise. We found this information. It's still on their website, and everything is written not in tongue-in-cheek. This is him talking, which is interesting. And we're going to talk about what his positions are on everything. I first heard this in 2010, that he had said this in 2008. Uh, he had written this. And I was shocked. Now I have revisited it, and it's all true. That's my introduction to Joe Sims. Thank you. Best and Worst Ideas of Marxism by Joe Sims. Highlights from four separate August 2008 articles. Joe Sims' Worst Things About Marxism. Dictatorship of the Proletariat. Probably the worst phrase uttered by a political theorist ever. Who wants to live in a dictatorship? Even if I agreed with it conceptually, which I don't. The Machiavellian in me has enough sense not to repeat it. Its use is indefensible. And by the way, working class hegemony, whatever the hell that means, sorry Gramscians, ain't much better. The dictatorship of the proletariat is the essence, the basis of Karl Marx. It's the basis of Marxism. So for anyone to attack that because they don't like the term tells me that they think they know more about what we have to offer the working class than Karl Marx does. And I think it's hilarious if it wasn't so sad. 
Joe Sims was in the leadership in the mm-hmm. Central Committee when Gus Hall was the head of the party. And Gus Hall made very clear his position on the dictatorship of a proletariat. Gus said he disagreed with the term dictatorship of the proletariat. Why not use something that Americans can be accustomed to? And that is that we live in a dictatorship now of the wealthy. We want to change that. And we want the majority of the people to rule, not the minority, but we want the majority of the people to rule, the 99%. That's the way Gus presented it. This clown, and I call him a clown, is saying he disagrees with it altogether. The whole idea of the majority of the people in this country who work for a living, that they should be in control of this country. He disagrees with that idea. He makes it clear. He says it clearly. So he's not only opposed to Gus Hall, who was for 50 years, 5-0, the general secretary of the CPUSA. He's going further to the right. The essence, the essence of Marx, as opposed to every other socialist theoretician, is that the dictatorship of the proletariat is needed. I want to mention something here. It's very important. Those of us who are in the CP for 30, 40 years, that is our first love. When you have your first love, you never forget your first love. And therefore, no one could accuse us of being anti-CPUSA. What we are is anti-those who have become anti-communist. This first paragraph tells you almost everything that you need to know about what we're going to be reading tonight. If you talk to any CP member, or even if you were to look at the CP's platform, which I've been reading through again recently, a lot of this can seem pedantic. But right here, Joe Sims, when he says, even if I agreed with it being the dictatorship of the proletariat conceptually, which I don't, this isn't simply an argument against the way this is phrased. It is a complete and utter disregard for the dictatorship of the proletariat as a concept. Joe Sims is not speaking from a Marxist perspective. He's certainly not speaking from a Leninist perspective. And I think it's important that when we participate in polemics and discuss our positions about our party, we recognize that the CP isn't speaking about this from an optics perspective. This is an ideological perspective. Bravo, bravo. One of my favorite things about this monstrosity of an article is right at the start, whenever anybody gets scared, if you're teaching someone about communism, of the term dictatorship of the proletariat, you just immediately let them know that we're currently living in a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So to either horribly misrepresent it or ignorantly present it, which I believe it's a horrible misrepresentation here, is just pointless and foolhardy. And to further it, he references having spoken with, quote-unquote, Gramsciists. And so that's not someone – we're talking about Joe Simpson. And that's not someone who is, even if you didn't know the name, barely scratching the surface of communism. This is someone who's interacted with cultural ideas from a more niche but central Italian communist figure that has ideas that are still relevant to Marxism and Leninism. I don't even know what else to say. How do you reference Gramsci and still get DOTP wrong? 
part of me wants to read this and laugh really hard. There's something that struck me quite particularly, not only the way that he dismissed the dictatorship of the proletariat, but the fact that either he doesn't know what the word hegemony means, which is an incredibly common political science term, which considering he's been in a Communist Party for at least some time, he should have heard by now, or can't be bothered to go look it up on the Internet, or is trying to pretend to be dumb. I'm not sure what he's really going for here. Maybe this is like some bad stand-up. This is basic stuff. If you aren't in favor of the working class ruling, what are you in favor of? You're in favor of the ruling class ruling, so why bother and go through all this effort? There's so many problems to it. One, I feel it's devoid entirely of a dialectical analysis in the sense that when they were using the term dictatorship, it didn't mean what it means the way we use it today. At the time, when Marx wrote it, it was literally the concept of who is dictating the laws. And so to completely ignore that is just sans a dialectical analysis. It also has no class analysis in the sense that if you say you don't want to live in a dictatorship of the proletariat, but then you're ignoring the fact that we currently do live in a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. You're basically saying, let's just keep that going. And then if you don't even believe in it conceptually, if you're going to say, well, we can't do that because it would just be wrong, that sounds just like idealism, pure, unadulterated idealism. If you're going to call yourself a communist, you have to hold steadfast to the term dictatorship of the proletariat, proletarian dictatorship, working class dictatorship. This is the literal epitome of democracy. These people follow democratic centralism. It's hilarious to me how they're going about this. Notice he says, I don't even believe this. Well, let me tell you what Comrade Gus Hall said. He said he didn't like the term dictatorship or the proletariat, but he understood what it meant. And he put it this way. I'll never forget. It means a society run by the leadership of the working class. This clown, I call him a clown, Joe Sims, doesn't even admit to that, to what Comrade Gus said, that we need to have the working class and the leadership and take out the capitalists. So Gus understood what it said. He didn't like the way it was presented in the words dictatorship, but he went clearly ahead and explained that he agreed with the concept. This guy, who's not a member, by the way, let's clarify, he is the leader of the CP, and this is his position. If anybody thinks that he changed his position, you're wrong. It's on the website of Political Affairs. So it's still there. The whole party takes it as their own. Thank you. I'm shocked. This guy is definitely not a communist and obviously has no clue what the dictatorship of the proletariat actually is. He doesn't seem to be even attempting to find out. What's unbelievable to me is that the CPUSA actually listened to this and accepted it from their leadership. This is just bizarre.
listening to this, I got the impression that this may have been more like a smear campaign of some sorts, just from the fact that he's so blatantly warping what dictatorship of the proletariat means. But what strikes me even more interesting was when he mentioned Machiavelli, it brought back echoes to me of the Moscow trial pamphlet regarding what was said about the Kautskyites, where one of them confessed saying that and was espousing about Machiavelli. And as a note, yes, Machiavelli is very important politically, but it's even more important to recognize his perspective from a socialist angle, which is individualist and completely centered around careerism and gain for an individual, not for the collective. Be wary of anyone who calls themselves a Marxist-Leninist or a communist and who espouses points from Machiavelli. What I cannot understand about this person is I don't know his history, how he joined the Communist Party and how they even accepted him. Because when you accept a member in the Communist Party, there is criteria, there is a pledge of allegiance. And how he even managed to be a member of the party is very puzzling. He should not have been accepted at all. This guy is a petty bourgeois lampan. He has nothing to do with Marxism Leninism. I want to just mention to everyone, this is the leader, the leader of the party right now. He wow. runs everything. <laughs> okay? He's a leader, which means the whole party is that way. Well, is it, He's is the head. Wow. Single party state. Related to, but not necessarily derivative from the, quote, proletarian dictatorship, the one-party state became and remains the model of, quote, existing socialism. Whatever existing socialism means, as the old model with one or two exceptions no longer exists. Created to facilitate a forced march and manage popular consent by controlling the flow of information, it became a substitute for democratic decision-making, ideological struggle by convincing and consent instead of directive and decree. The Internet has rendered completely useless this concept. The single-party state is doomed. It sounds to me like Joe Sims is just endorsing factionalism. For one, China and the DPRK, they actually have multiple parties. Not every party has the authority by the Constitution to rule the government, but there are multiple parties, no matter how small. But even then, he plays into this liberal fear that a one-party state is some oppressive totalitarian function. It's an institution that rules by democratic centralism. Critiquing socialist countries doesn't stop anywhere. And in fact, he says with only a couple of exceptions. He doesn't even mention the Soviet Union, of which he understands fully well the history and the significance and importance of the Soviet Union. I would point to Cuba and say that Cuba not only is still existing in 2021, but the government has multiple Twitter accounts. The Communist Party of Cuba is on Twitter and actively promotes their information. They're thriving in the 21st century. So I would say that the idea of a single party state being doomed because of the Internet 
is complete nonsense. And not only that, but now with none of the original Castro leaders in power, they showed that they're able to move from one era to another. The other Eastern Bloc countries had multi-party systems. The important factor in the multi-party democratic systems of the working-class states is that they're all led by a working-class party and that they're all oriented towards the supremacy of the working class. That's the only valid way to have multiple parties. You can't have a multi-party system if you don't have multiple parties that are fighting for the working-class power. When I think about the nature of a single party versus having a Congress of different parties or a parliament, to me what is key about that is if we're trying to achieve the dictatorship of the proletariat, that being the explicit rule of the proletariat over the means of production, we need to set the limits of debate. And I think by having a singular party that has its own code of conduct, its own creed and rules, that it clearly defines its parameters and objectives, specifically around helping and maintaining the best quality of life for the working class and advancing socialism, it to me seems like it is something that helps to delineate the barriers between and stop the factionalism and these other things that would seek to undo the revolution once it's been established. I was reading the website today, and there was a question on there, which someone asked, after the revolution, if the people want to not have communism, then what happens? And the response is, well, it wouldn't be a one-party state, and the people would get to democratically choose, which capitalists have a lot of money and influence, why would you give them tools to make counter-revolution easier? This is ridiculous. We know historically that there's plenty of room for disagreements and different political lines to take through inter-party discussions. So the idea that you would need a bunch of different parties to have a democracy is absurd. I don't know where to start with this. The guy is an embarrassment to every communist who ever lived. He's saying that we should allow counter-revolution. That's what he's saying. And it makes total sense because he's anti-Lenin. And Lenin's big contribution is, if a revolution cannot defend itself, it has no right to exist. That's a quote from Comrade Lenin. If a revolution does not defend itself, but has no right to exist. And therefore, any revolution that tries to defend themselves against those who want to bring back capitalism is illegitimate in the eyes of this guy. But he thinks there's no problem with counter-revolution. He probably has no problem with what happened to all these countries that had guaranteed income, that had jobs, that had full paid education, that are now living under semi-fascist rule in Eastern Europe, because they allowed the counter-revolution to come back. Again, he is the leader of a group that calls themselves communists. Reading this reminds me of Lenin and what is to be done when he's talking about how the other socialist parties were considering the Bolsheviks to be dogmatists because they thought that Marxism had been invalidated. And so they brought up the freedom of criticism against the Bolsheviks. And so the Bolsheviks were saying that these people who were trying to suggest that Marxism was dogmatic were instead promoting bourgeois ideology. 
And that's ultimately what Joe Sims is implying here. He's not talking about working class ideological hegemony. He's talking about the ability of the bourgeoisie and bourgeois ideology to take over the revolution and the state so that capitalism and the bourgeoisie can be reinstated in state power. Very important. In 1991, I was in Cuba, and you can only run under the Communist Party. They have one party, the Revolutionary Party, the Communist Party, yet they have three elections under the banner of the Communist Party. And people who run against each other under the Communist Party banner the people that feel that they can meet the needs of the people better than somebody else, but it's only under the Communist Party banner. And you contrast that with what happened in Nicaragua, where the Sandinistas allowed what they called free elections. And what happened is that the CIA came in, and the CIA gave tremendous amounts of money. Millions of dollars were spent giving people weak salary just to prove who they were voting for. And in a narrow victory, the Sandinistas lost so much for allowing some other party to run. This is why it's important not to allow non-communist parties in a communist society to be allowed to rise. Whenever I hear anybody complain about a one-party state, it sends off alarm bells in my head because that's such liberal baggage. The one-party state or the one party is so much more democratic when we see it and when we've observed it. There's so much more democracy in that, and there's so much more discussion. And my one biggest observation is I believe that a multi-party state weakens a workers' movement. It really is a tool that the bourgeoisie and the elite class can use to divide us and to pit us against each other. And I believe that a multi-party state really does weaken us in the broad picture. One thing that I think is important to note here is that although this is an ideological rejection of these concepts, it's not an ideological critique. This is yellow journalism, and I think that that's complimentary. It's nothing. It is literally just rejecting them outright, not providing any reasoning for it, not making an argument. And I think that it's both disgusting and insulting that any organization that calls itself communist would allow a person like this to participate, in, let alone be in a leadership position. I think it's interesting that he starts out of the gate with saying related to, but not necessarily derivative from, proletarian dictatorship. The party represents a class or a social group of some sort, at the very least. There are different groups within a class, depending on who it is. For example, Democrats, Republicans, different sections of the bourgeoisie. He's just doubling down on his initial belief by saying this, because what we have here with a single-party state is where basically we are the party of the working class. We're the party of the proletariat. When we're saying a single-party state, well, there might be some minority parties, possibly, but there's no way there's going to be any other major party, no hegemony over the other parties by any party other than the worker state because the workers are the majority of all the people in the world. And as we develop socialism, which he also goes on in the next point about being against, you're just going to have more workers. So really it's what you're looking at here is He's trying to frame this as some sort of anti-democratic thing, when in reality, we have democracy right now, democracy based on private property and money. Single-party state, if it's a workers' party, then you have democracy amongst the workers. And that's what we're after in the first place. It's my understanding that the former socialist countries of Europe, especially East Germany, weren't even technically one-party states. I know East Germany had at least four other parties that participated in the Volkskammer, 
That's correct. All the countries had what we call fatherland fronts. That's what they were called. And it came after the war. It was won over fascism. They wanted to make sure that no fascists would ever be elected again. So they all joined together, all the parties that were victims of fascism in Europe. In each of the Eastern European countries, they formed fatherland fronts, and they all agreed that socialism was going to be built, no longer capitalism. What this clown is saying, that we're denying capitalists, listen to this joke, we're denying the capitalists the right to electorally organize. We got Trump. Thank you. The Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, they had more than one party. There was the Social Revolutionary Party, its left wing, that went into government. But sadly, six months later, one of them shot Lenin in his neck. Then it became illegal. And then they joined the counter-revolution. But at first, the Bolsheviks said, yeah, welcome. You agree with socialism? Go for it. Go with us. But look what they did. They went all the way against it. I just can't wrap my head around the oversight of allowing somebody like this to be in a position in the party. You would think that one person would voice opposition and say, no, I'm not going to let this happen and everything like this. Why such a massive oversight? Well, look what happened with Gorbachev. How the hell did the first working class party in the planet that got a revolution and won, how did they allow someone like Gorbachev to get to the top without anybody voicing objection? That's the same question. And the answer is, there were people, but they're keeping quiet. They're keeping silence. That's the only thing I could assume, and I'm assuming this, that they're quiet right now. Knowing the history of that party when we left, I don't believe there's anyone left who's willing to do that. One comrade from California, this was way back in 2010, told me if they change the name from the Communist Party to the Social Democratic Party of America, they will stay with them. So there's your answer. This is a real situation. They will go down with the ship, comrades. I was a member of the Communist Party for 10 years. 2008 is when I left, when this was printed. Part of the reason was ideology. The other part was a tremendous amount of struggle going in within the party over the ideology and the fact that anybody who believed in communism was forced out of the party because they wanted to take the party in a different direction other than communism. Before this was written, there was a, something that came out in 2004 written by Sam Webb called Socialism of the 21st Century, which basically refuted everything that had to do with communism and the socialism and even attacked the Soviet Union and so forth and said that we should look towards Chile as an example of what to do. That didn't go over too well. The problem is, is that when they talk about the dictatorship or whatever, one-party state, is the fact that they don't realize. I was in Vietnam for a conference once in 2007. Within the party, women's rights, labor, so forth, they're all fighting within the party. It's democratic within the party. So there is democracy within a one-party state, much more than the United States. Hearing this read aloud just reminds me that a couple months ago, actually, I was meeting with our president of the local labor union to discuss some issues. And he sat down with me and goes, when are you going to join the Communist Party? And he was trying to get me to join 
the CPUSA just telling me about how, oh, they're getting rid of the liquidationists and they're trying to correct the party. But from the way I see it, if the guy that wrote this is still part of the head of the party, then I don't see much correction being made. Listing defense of Soviet Union under the 21 points for joining the Comintern. The idea of, quote, defending socialism by detachments outside of those countries attempting to build it led to some of the biggest quagmires and mistakes of the 20th century. Still with us in many forms, including the defense of the use of death penalty by some of the ruling parties for, quote, economic crimes, a practice not even followed in countries practicing Sharia law who cut your hand off. This section says defending the Soviet Union by every other communist in the world was a mistake. It was a problem. If you read the 21 points that Lenin put out, he's also disagreeing with Lenin, which I thought was the funniest thing. Who the hell is he? He's trying to compare his view with someone like Lenin? My God, who does he think he is? He thinks he's an actor still on the stage. But that's what I thought was extremely interesting. This is about the Soviet Union. Should we ever have defended the Soviet Union? I finished. Thank you. Just very quick, I'll make a comment about Sharia law. I knew some people from Saudi Arabia who explained to me about the whole notion of cutting off someone's hand. It's really not so commonplace. You have to be guilty of something really big for them to do that. But if it's like petty theft, that doesn't really happen. So he's already showing uh, ignorance of another culture and kind of, I would argue that being discriminatory to another culture and showing his lack of awareness, I think that's a little telling. What he said about Sharia law, that was Islamophobic. And we have to ask ourselves, why is he using the tactic of class division? Because that's what racism and Islamophobia is. Its purpose is to divide the working class along different lines. I thought this point just really didn't make sense. Why would you join the Comintern if you're going to not defend the Soviet Union, the leader of the Comintern? Why even be communist if you're not going to agree with that? And I really liked how he managed to squeeze in a little bit of Western chauvinism with his little jab at Sharia law. One of my chief points on defending communism is the laws dealing with high economic crime. That's what most communist countries and the whole communist concept deals with uh, criminality. Here, we execute people. If somebody kills somebody, execute people, if they're desperate, maybe they rob somebody, we'll put them to death. The corporations like the Sacklers and the Oxycodon, who kill millions of people throughout the world with their drugs, or bankers who steal millions of dollars from people and are not punished. I explain that even in my own family and around people, I talk to them about the high economic crimes, and I say, in the Soviet Union, if you got drunk and you got in an argument and killed somebody, you would get punished, but you really only affect the people around you. It was a personal tragedy, but it really had no great effect on the whole population. But somebody who actually committed what they call high economic crime, if you actually stole from the people, you actually are affecting the whole foundation of the society.
And that's why people were dealt with harshly in sentence. At this point in the reading, I had first thought of this person as just a utopian, somebody who didn't really know what they were talking about, until Angela was talking about how he's the leadership, our leadership in CPUSA. So I think he's a clown with purposeful intention of capturing workers and basically robbing them of their revolutionary potential. I think it's good that we're studying some of the stuff that he's written. I basically consider him a class enemy, and you should be studying your enemy. Comrades, having known this individual, I'm not surprised at this statement from him. He is anti-Soviet. He always was anti-Soviet. When Stalin was gone, he was still anti-Soviet. When Gus Hall used to go to the anniversary of November to the Soviet Union to help celebrate it with them, he was always screaming, why are we spending money? to send Gus over there. What kind of individual is this? If you're anti-Soviet, then what is the difference between you and other people in the bourgeois society? The only place that the Soviet Union had friends was in the communist parties throughout the world. Is that a negative thing? I think that's positive. I think he is negative. The Soviet Union is one of the biggest success at the time. It had progressed a lot by central planning, using scientific socialism through the Marxist-Leninist vanguard party that helped build the worker and build the economy of the Soviet Union, especially under Comrade Stalin. To say that the Soviet Union, it's wrong, that's really a very ignorant thing to say. I think it's completely ridiculous to not defend the Soviet Union they were the first to ever attempt socialism and were successful at it. You can make the argument for the Paris Commune, but that's neither here nor there. And no one's saying that any of these countries were completely perfect, but the Soviet Union was the largest attempt at it, and I would say and argue one of the most successful. They were the leaders, they were the main organizers of all the world communist parties. They were the biggest attempt at internationalism to try and form an international solidarity among the working class. This guy seems more concerned with optics and the aesthetic of socialism than building working class movement. Disavowing the USSR hurts the working class movement. Quote, Marxism, Marxism-Leninism, end quote. Very bad idea to name a scientific worldview after individuals. Way too subjective. And besides, too many bad stories and nightmares associated with it, and not very working class sounding. Too many syllables and hyphens. Replace it with scientific socialism or the socialist and communist idea. The term Marxism-Leninism historically is attributed to Comrade Joseph Stalin. That's number one. Joe Sims and every other leader of the CPUSA has been anti-Stalin. They've been anti-Stalin since 1956. When Brezhnev came along in the Soviet Union, they never talked about Stalin. And let me tell you the analysis of Comrade Gus Hall, because I've had these discussions with him. Stalin did good things, and Stalin made mistakes. So if you put him on a scale, he's 50-50. That's the analysis of Gus Hall. After Gus Hall went, 
They went further to the right, and they constantly do this, comrade. They start at one level, and they keep going to the right. They don't stop until they destroy the whole communist experience. And now they're anti-Stalin. So, of course, Joe Sims, sly fox that he is, Machiavellian, yes, that's Joe Sims. Sly fox that he is, he doesn't want to say he's anti-Stalin because there are people coming into his party who are pro-Stalin. So what he says is we don't use the term Marxism-Leninism. The Marxism-Leninism, is, is this guy, I mean, I read the whole thing last week. Unlike Angelo, I don't know Joe Sims that much. Only a basic idea of him, because it's been so many years. I'm sure if I saw his face, I would remember him. I tend to remember faces better than names at my age. But it's unbelievable. Marxism-Leninism, I mean, I talk about politicians. You're talking about a man that wrote two huge volumes, which if you were a college student, it would take you a tile semester to read those, go through those and discuss those volumes. To say Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto and all the other writings that he did with Engels. And then, of course, to piggyback that in the writings of Lenin, one of the greatest world theorists, to say Marxism-Leninism is not legitimate is unbelievable. And the author was trying to rename Marxism, Leninism to like scientific socialism. From being an engineer and taking a lot of physics classes, in science, no one questions why the Newton is called the Newton, which is named after Isaac Newton. I don't think Marx himself ever said that this is Marxism, I am creating Marxism. Just like the Newton, there was other people that recognized the research and the effort of ideology put into create the guide. Same with Lenin. So other people use that term in recognition of their effort. It's more collective than the offer gives it credit for. This whole thing already feels like a Twitter rant at best and a YouTube troll comment essay at worst. But this part really takes a cake for me because these are people who are literally paving in groundbreaking theory and analyzing it in a scientific way and having it attributed to them makes sense. But also... It's just such a odd and superfluous point to complain about. It sounds to me like he's doing his best to separate himself from the Soviets, like Angelo said, and our history. Our leaders are communists, the people whose ideas and framework frame our ideology, which is ridiculous. And I don't understand how he's even called a communist with the stance they have on the dictatorship of the proletariat and Marxist-Leninism. And it even sounds like contempt for the working class, when he says it's too many syllables. He's insulting to the people who he's supposed to be representing and wanting to fight for. I don't understand how he calls himself communist. At best, maybe he could be some type of socialist, but is not a communist. To go away from Marxism-Leninism, that's what we are. That's the line we have, and that name is the name because those are the men who came up with the ideas that we frame it around. Scientists have things named after them all the time so it's not anti-scientific to do so. On the point about syllables, this goes to show you how intellectual this person is. He says, Marxism-Leninism is too many syllables. And so for those who don't want to count, that's seven syllables. And he offers to replace it with two different things. Scientific socialism, which if you count it out, is eight syllables, and a socialist and communist idea, which is still more syllables than Marxism-Leninism. So even though his complaint is that there's too many syllables, the things that he offers to replace it with are even more syllables than Marxism-Leninism. Again, shows you the very sophisticated level that this individual is thinking on.
along the lines of his dismissive view of the working class as being ignorant or simple-minded with too many syllables in the name, it very closely mirrors other right-wing anti-communist arguments of the working class as being too ignorant to leave themselves. If you look into what he's actually said here, that Marxism-Leninism doesn't sound like a working-class ideology, well, this sounds like not only petty bourgeois, but also American exceptionalism here. Marxism-Leninism was good enough for the people of Russia, it was good enough for the people of China, of Vietnam, etc., but it's not good enough for us, us American workers. Good point, good point. He mentioned the nightmares associated with the terms, and I think that's really telling. You have to wonder what nightmares he thinks are associated with Marxism-Leninism, which is an ideology his party followed for years. When he mentions Marxism and Marxism-Leninism being named after individuals and trying to distance himself from it, it reminds me of people who say things along the lines of Marx was just a white man or Marxism is a European ideology or things like that. It really shows how much these people have not studied it and they haven't even looked at the history of people who have attempted it and even people who have added to the thought and the ideology over the years. There's a lot that's being left out Really unfortunate, because even looking at the history of Marxism, it's very rich, and there's a lot to be learned from very, very many people. I don't have a problem with Marxism-Leninism, obviously, but let's say that the majority of people do have negative connotations with what we call ourselves. How do we plan to go about that? Our job should be to explain to people things. We should all be teachers. If someone doesn't understand something, we try to offer our services in explaining it. It's not that we call ourselves Marxist-Leninist, which is true. We call ourselves communist. So we're not going to use the word Marxist-Leninism. We're not going to use the word communism. Well, when do we stop? What do we call ourselves when people finally understand who we are? That's problematic. We have to draw a line in the sand and say, this is what we are. We're proud of this, if we are. And we want to explain to the whole world what we are. You go on the Internet, and Facebook is composed of people telling everybody all kinds of things because they're proud of it, and they want to share it with the whole planet. So they tell everybody what they had for breakfast, what they had for lunch, when they went to the bathroom, how did it come out? I'm being facetious. But that's what they do on Facebook. So they try to explain everything. Let's stop explaining ourselves and try to explain what we want for a better world. What is the science of Marxism-Leninism? What is the theory? What is the practice? If we don't understand it ourselves, then we need to understand it first before we even talk about that term with anybody outside of our circle. Now, the reason why Marxism-Leninism was rejected by this guy Sims is because it was coined, and I used to do your research on this. Who was the first person who used the term Marxism-Leninism? It was Comrade Stalin. That's the problem. So they attacked Stalin without saying it, 
But the things that Stalin built, what he said, the terms he used are being a question now as, well, we can't use these terms because they're associated with a prison system. It gives people bad connotations in their mind. Our job is to explain, clear out the fog in people's minds and explain it in simple terms. And if we lose some people along the way, that is okay. But we will gain some people along the way, and that is our job, little by little, to build up our movement. I'm really proud to be a communist. I try to talk to everybody about it. People have very bad views on a lot of communists, but when you get to know somebody, like, for example, when you get to do, do organizing, like you organize tenants, you get to know them and all that stuff, and then they realize that you're a communist, and you tell them you're a communist, and they realize that this communist perception is not real, that we're actually here to help help each other because we're a community. Joe Sims put things that he rejected and he liked from Marx and other revolutionary individuals. It reminded me of a term called polymarxism, and I have it right here in the paper from Ideological Fight Back, which is a reprint of Revisionism, Opportunism, and Polymarxism from the Communist Party Cuba. Polymarxism is simply the alleged right of any opportunist to pick whatever thesis he chooses from the Marxist theory and discard others. This could be described as a method of pick and choose to suit your own purpose. And I just wanted to bring that up because it felt very much in relation to what we are discussing. Uh, and this guy seems to be a comedian of sorts. If the subject matter wasn't so sneaky, poisonous, and seriously wrong, you'd laugh at it. It makes you wonder if he's just jealous of real communism, its principles, and its leaders, or if he hates it altogether. Either way, he's no good how interesting and backwards it is that in this paragraph he almost implies that the only thing about Marxism-Leninism he disagrees with is the name, even though in the previous paragraphs and in the paragraphs that are coming up, he completely denies that. He doesn't agree with the ideology. Negation of negation. Most people have no idea what the heck that means in dire need of reformulation, so people can at least understand it. Negation of the negation is kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Minus and minus, you go back to plus. So it's kind of like a circle, but not a real circle, like a spiral. So look at this like this. Capitalism took away the private producers, small producers' property, and it became capitalist property. And then re socialist revolution overthrow capitalism and makes this property public to everybody. So it's kind of like now the workers recover its property except in a superior fashion. It's one for all, all for one. So in other words, you go back to the beginning but in a better form. So that's pretty much what they mean. If someone doesn't understand something, what do you do? You don't talk about it, or you talk about it to educate them? That's the number one thing as an educator for 32 years. If someone doesn't understand it, you don't say, I'm not going to talk about it. 
That's ridiculous. So negation, negation. Our job is to explain it, not to say we're not going to talk about it. You can look at it in a sense of a double negative, something that cancels something out that was already negative. I don't think that it really is that difficult for many people to understand the negation of negation if it's explained in a simple manner. This is really underestimating the entire working population, in my opinion. As far as where to read about it, one of the books that we've released on New Outlook, Materialism and the Dialectical Method by Maurice Cornforth, there's quite a bit on dialectical materialism as a whole, but there is a section specifically on the negation of negation. It's pretty extensive. Religion is the opium of the people. Quote, probably the second stupidest phrase ever uttered by a political theorist. Here again, indefensible, even if it was taken out of context. Truly, God is not our enemy. Capitalism is. What Marx was talking about was religion used in the context of a capitalist society, as in Tsarist Russia or whatever other society at the time. But the suppression of religion in certain socialist countries did lead to internal conflicts and problems with people not wanting to contribute to the building of socialist society. So he's misinterpreting the context of the original quote there. When Marx uses the term opiate of the masses, referring to religion, that's not incorrect. What this guy here has done, the guy in the CP, is he is really misinterpreting it, but also conflating it with religious oppression. So he's conflating an analysis with religious oppression which was not the main policy of the Soviet Union or most other socialist countries. In regards to the idea of opiate of the masses in and of itself, if you want to read the passage yourself, it is a little complicated, but the short of it, what it's trying to say is that religion provides solace for the masses. It provides them with something because... In Marx's words, it is a heartless world. It is a soulless world under capitalism, and religion provides something for the people to hold on to. And what he was directly advocating for was the creation of a world where that's not needed. Not that that doesn't exist, but it's not needed. He said, God is not our enemy, and... This is obviously true, especially in our party where we have a religious affairs commission. And belief is not our enemy, but a religious hierarchy very much can be. Look at the Russian Orthodox Church, which was essentially an arm of czarist oppression. You look at that and say, that's not an enemy of the workers. Well, yes, their belief in God isn't, but the church could be. He said that Marxism-Leninism is too removed from working people, but he certainly seems to use a lot of words that some people may not know what he's talking about. It reminds me of an old saying, either you're ignorant and you don't know what you're doing, or you're willfully trying to mislead. Let me read you the whole quote that Marx gave, and he doesn't go into it. Religious suffering is, of one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest 
against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. And he's too lazy even to find the whole quote. He said, even if it's taken out of context, the only thing I agree with is the last sentence. Our fight is not against God, it's against capitalism. And what we did in our party is we set up a religious affairs commission. We can work with religious people. He doesn't do that. He tries to attack Marx, attack Lenin, attack Marx, attack the Soviet Union, attacking our history. Our argument is not with a supernatural being. Our argument is with capitalism. That's correct. If we're Marxist, we're supposed to be materialist. And what is materialism? It's a philosophy of life that differs from the idealist philosophy of life, which looks at the world as it is, not as we want it to be. We look at the world as it is, not the way we want it to be. An idealist philosophy wants it to be a certain way, and they practice their life as if it is that. What we touch, what we smell, what we hear as materialists, we know is concrete. He doesn't even go into any of that. What he goes into is cherry picking. I like this cherry. I'm going to take that one. Mm, it's good. I don't like this cherry, so he threw it on the ground, the next cherry. He cherry picks. And to build up his own individualist, personal philosophy. His whole assumption is the worst things of Marxism and the best things of Marxism as I see it. Who made him the barometer of the world's goodness and wrongness? That's the question I have. How can a leader of a party that's collective talk about how he sees everything? We should look at things objectively as they are, not subjectively as we see them. Far from being a stupid quote, it ties back to the whole new atheism thing and the young Hegelians, which Marx and Engels came out of, where everyone was against religion. Basically, what he's saying is religion is a reflection of the material reality people are born into. Religion is what people use to get by, to make the world seem okay, because at least there's something better out there. Whether you believe it or not, nothing's going to change anything about religion until you change the material conditions of the people that live in it. And that's why we have to build a worker state and end the exploitation of man by man. All of this is just liberalism is what it is more than anything. I've noticed a pattern of him continuously attacking our leaders and separating us from our history as communists. He even states that Marx's statement is a misquote, but he still uses it to attack him. And that's ridiculous. And I see that still somewhat today from people both on the right and left of us who will use that to go after Lenin, go after Marx and say how they're not necessary anymore, but still call themselves communists or socialists and not have any respect for the people who came up with the theory and the ideas that actually have been used to bring it to practice in the real world. This was the first time reading tonight that I can see a statement of Joe Sims opposing capitalism. We read about how he opposed the dictatorship of the proletariat, opposed a single-party state, opposed listening defense of the Soviet Union under the 21 points for joining the Comintern, opposes Marxism, opposes Marxism-Leninism, 
But now, now we learn that our enemy is capitalism. I hope that everyone will excuse myself and other comrades for not buying what Joe Sims is saying, hook, line, and sinker. I don't buy it. Throughout this whole article, he's not once practiced any form of basic dialectics. He gives an opinion piece like it's a BuzzFeed article or something even more childish than that. If he really wanted to, he could make a critique of the use of religion being the opiate of the masses and provide a materialist explanation and use basic dialectic concepts to explain where that came from, the context in which it was made and why it could potentially be problematic saying it in certain contexts these days, but he doesn't even attempt that. It's like he has one thought going through his head and just comes straight out of his mouth without any filter. 2008, he's not a teenager. He's been around. He should be educated on this kind of thing, but he's writing middle school analysis. Socialist realism. While some mighty pieces of art and literature were produced within the framework of this aesthetic school, some not-so-great ones were, too. And by the way, what's wrong with a little, or even a lot, of escapism every now and then? It's hard out here for the party of a new type. I think that statement also forgets the fact that oftentimes the media is used as a tool of propaganda. If you want escapism, what are you trying to escape from? Socialism? Because if that's what you're saying, then what you're saying is that you want to indulge yourself in capitalist media, which is, of course, counter-revolutionary. Never forget that, even to this day, the tools in the media of capitalism include the media in all of its forms. I would argue that the Soviet Union had more avenues to allow people to express themselves than any other capitalist society ever did because they actually were able to have different theaters and different performing groups and artists and stuff like that come into workplaces and show off their art to people. People were able to find their interest and study under these uh, kind of art forms. And then eventually, if they were good enough, they could leave if they were working in a factory or something like that, they could go perform professionally in a theater. So I would say that the USSR and other socialist countries would give somebody who wanted to escape, however he's putting it, an easier chance to do that. Because under capitalism, obviously, you're forced to go in to work every day, to work eight hours or more, five days a week or more, just to be able to survive. And then you come home and you're exhausted and you don't have any ability to explore your hobbies or interests outside of the work. But at least with communism and under USSR, you have more of a chance to do that because you have more opportunities and more time to do it as well. Escapism is a privilege. It's something that one can do if, at least in my opinion, they're not being weighed down by the circumstances of their environment and specifically of their economic conditions. If you're someone who has to constantly be grinding, how much is escapism, thinking outside of your conditions, going to help change them and help bring about some real type of revolutionary action? I like socialist realism as an art kind of aesthetic 
because it really paints a light on the hard work of laborers, of workers in general, of all working people besides the capitalists who are so often the focus of this escapist type of media. If we're to escape, what are we to escape into? It's telling of the liberal and bourgeois tendencies underlying this individual. The whole idea why we formed the PCUSA is that the PCUSA assessed critically and scientifically the old party is a totally liquidationist party. Those individuals, in my opinion, I suspect they are sold out. So I think we should understand this uh, decline and degeneration. I had no real idea about the CP coming into the party. I knew that they had diverged from the principles of Marxism-Leninism, but I had no idea that they had gone this far off. And to see that not only is that the philosophy of a member, but the leader, that is an eye-opener, and that is very much an attention-getter, and definitely something that needs to be considered and talked about and made aware of by other comrades. And it's good to hear those from the party former coming in and being aware of the condition of what it is. I think it exposes the bankruptcy of the ideology because really what we have here is an article from the ideological magazine of the CPUSA of its now current leader in an editorial quality of something like a BuzzFeed article. And it's just embarrassing. And now today you see, I actually saw a video the other day of Joe Sims sitting there in the CPUSA headquarters in front of pictures of Henry Winston and Gus Hall with a bust of Lenin next to him talking about what their party's doing. But here he is, completely bankrupt ideologically as far as communism goes. To paraphrase Lenin, so what is to be done? CPSA has immense influence internationally now. Based, and this is only based on their very commendable history from 1919 to maybe 1991. Currently, 2021, they have extensive influence in the communist community internationally. And how do we combat that? This is rhetorical. I'm really not asking for answers. But we have to do something. They are thwarting PCUSA on many fronts because they're living off their history. And we have to combat it now. Enough is enough. I agree that it's very important to expose these outfits for what they really are. People are out here searching for answers, searching for solutions to problems that they've encountered because of capitalism. And there's a lot of outfits out there that are designed to mislead people and sheepdog. There's a saying that silence is complicity. And if we're not actively trying to expose these groups for what they really are, then we're not going to see any progress and we're going to be part of the problem if we're not trying to counter that. When I initially joined this party, I almost paid dues on the wrong site because their content pulls up on search engines instead of ours. It's shocking to see how far things have fallen. Comrade, can you elaborate on what you meant or explain what you meant when you said that Joe Sims was paid by the party? Every communist party that has a substantial size pays people in their offices. And our party, the OCP, 
We had five or six offices around the country. There were people that came in at nine in the morning, answered the phones, did paperwork, et cetera, until 12, went to lunch, came back, and stayed until five. And we paid them. Not only did we pay them, we had the money to do that. The OCP has a budget of over $10 million a year. I don't know if anybody in this phone knows that. That's not a bad thing. The bad thing is, what do they use the money for? That's the thing we have to ask. So we paid people to do work in the office because the rest of us were working from 9 to 5. We couldn't do the work that needs to be done in the party office. So we paid people. They got health care benefits. They got pension fund. They were many times better off than people in the workforce. And a lot of those people got their jobs through nepotism. That's the way it was. None of us, including me, objected to it. We objected to it only when their ideology went south. When their ideology went kaput, that's when we started to object to it. These are not arguments. It's not that these aren't logical arguments. They're not arguments at all. They're literally just engaging in rhetoric of aesthetics. I just don't like this, and it doesn't vibe with me. That's not an argument. I consider myself to be a Marxist-Leninist because I have found it to be the most correct and the most logical thing that I've ever heard in my life. So listening to this, I can't even imagine what kind of ideology this person would be promoting. These things did not come out of a vacuum. They weren't ideas that just sprung out of whole cloth. They came from successes and failures in social liberation movements. That's where these ideas come from. They came from successes and failures. And to just write them off because there's too many syllables, that's not an argument that's ridiculous. Look at the tactics that he has used. He has used the tactics of deception, of misleading, of confusion. These are tactics that you use against one's enemies. You do not deceive your ally, your comrade, your friend, and so forth. In the first point he used, at one point he referred to himself as the Machiavellian in me. I encourage everyone to look into Machiavelli and the kind of ideas that he proposed and look at how harmful those ideas are. A question I want to propose to everyone here is, why was he selected to lead the CP? If he had so thoroughly was able to lie about every single important point about the communist movement, why was he selected? Why was he put in power? What we're going over is actually comprised of four articles, and each article was its own top 10, or two top 10, so to speak. It was the top 10 best things about Marxism and the top 10 worst things about Marxism. All these articles, all four of them, were published weekly in August 2008. And if we all remember, 2008 in the fall, we had a presidential election. So let's think about this. The person who is leading the CP now, or at least in a high leadership position, during a presidential election, not during midterms, not during anything else, during a key presidential election where there was no incumbent running, that being McCain and Obama, instead of offering an alternative, instead of offering a message to the working class, 
this individual was busy distorting Marxism in the run-up to a presidential election. I think we need to gauge what that means to a communist leader and why that would be an incorrect stance to take. And I also want to say the idea of having a Marxism top 10 is probably one of the most undialectical things I can even sort of conceive. Because even if you were to rank the top 10 quote-unquote best things about Marxism, in what universe does that change on a weekly basis? If that even existed, there would be absolutely no reason for the quote-unquote top 10 best and worst things about it to change on a week-to-week basis. I think people should really analyze how undialectical a thought like that would be and how the idea of the quote-unquote best and worst ideas of Marxism again, is much more akin to a BuzzFeed article than anything that should come from the CP. Again, because the CP carrying the legacy of the split from the Socialist Party in 1919, we had people like Gus Hall, people like Henry Winston, people like William L. Patterson, people like Claudia Jones, and now we have people like Joe Sims and the CP. So I really think people should analyze that dialectically. It doesn't even feel like there's intellectual rigor contained within this set of points that he's making. It very much feels like the BuzzFeed article some sort of a cultural top 10, as opposed to even actually any sort of ideological furthering of an argument or actually analyzing what these people said or how it applies today. It very much feels like filling space on paper. I urge people to question why this individual would be doing this during a presidential election. And I would also ask people the question, if there is a Marxism top 10, why does that change on a week-to-week basis? I'm going to repeat the quote-unquote Worst things about Marxism that we went over tonight. Again, I just want this to sink into people's heads. This is what Joe Sims says are the worst things about Marxism. The dictatorship of the proletariat, a single-party state, listing defense of the Soviet Union under the 21 points for joining the Comintern, Marxism and Marxism-Leninism, that should raise people's eyebrows, the negation of the negation, religion is the opium of the people, and socialist realism. This class was the best, in my opinion, for everything that everybody said. We have to start thinking for ourselves. We have to understand why the party chose that line. If we don't, we have to ask, why did the party choose that line? Not just say this is the party line. Because when someone asks you out in the real world, what is your position this? What are you going to say? We'll look like fools. We have to be in the vanguard. Now, I wrote some things here on the Internet. We need to go on the offensive. The key word is offensive against these people. we got to. We have to use polemics to defend our ideology of Marxism-Leninism. If we don't do it, who is going to defend it? The Maoists? The anarchists? The Trotskyites? The Social Democrats? No, none of them. Let's start talking about what we ate for breakfast on Facebook. It's ridiculous. Who cares what we ate for breakfast? Who cares we went to the bathroom at 1 o'clock in the afternoon? Get away from that nonsense. Let's stop being bourgeois-influenced. Let's use the Internet to mildly go into our disagreements with that old party. In terms of the members, we have to alert the members of that party. We know some of them that they're being hoodwinked. Do they know that certain things? And we got to write this down. We have to go on the offensive, not be afraid to do it. That doesn't mean we attack blindly. We do not do that. We use information that's factual. Urge people in that party to go do research. 
urge people in that party to find out what their leadership is thinking. And getting away from this photo ops, where they stand in front of a wall of communist heroes, every single one of them, by the way, lived during Stalin's time and followed Comrade Stalin. This jokester is sitting in front of them, smiling without saying a word. The implication is obvious that he's following them, and he's not. Tell people that since 1992, their treasurer decided with the party agreement to invest their money in the stock market. How many communists invest their money in the stock market? How many communist parties, not individuals, parties? This is taking party funds and investing it. How does that make sense? Why should that communist party be opposed to getting rid of capitalism in their country if they invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in the stock market? That's ridiculous. The next thing, living off their laurels. Look at the word laurels. They're living off what they did 50, 60 years ago. That's great what they did. What are they doing now? How are they different? Urge them to come out and attack Comrade Stalin and attack Comrade Lenin and to get away from the mask. They have a mask that says communism. Get away from that mask and let's see what they really are. Remember, they refused to print any books by Comrade Gasol. Why? Because Comrade Gasol was pro-Soviet. That's the simple beginning and end. These people are anti-Soviet. Anti-Soviet to the hilt. From John Bechtel to Sam Webb to Rosanna, along with Joe Sims. And attack them on the issue of the Soviet Union. How dare they? How dare they attack the Soviet Union? If it wasn't for the 1917 revolution, these people would still be where? In the Socialist Party. And that's where they belong. That's where they belong on elections. In the past, the party supported a Democratic candidate, even from the time of Roosevelt. But they gave an analysis. They said why they're supporting him. And they said why other things that Roosevelt did should not be supported. This is a different attitude than blind support for the Democratic Party. It's a blind support. All they do is say, Trump is a fascist, therefore we're voting Democrat. That's not an analysis that a communist should give. Let's tell them what's going on with, what's his name? I don't even know his name anymore. It used to be Obama, now he has a different mask. Biden. They have a different face, it's the same policies. Where is Biden good? Where is Biden bad? Is Biden all bad on everything? Is he all good on everything? None of that discussion that comes out of them on their website. There is no ideology there. And with that, I want to urge everybody to go out and use the Internet in order to polemicize. Don't attack them. Polemicize their leadership, what their leadership is. If the rank and file agrees with that, then stay there. But if the rank and file want to be pro-Soviet, pro-Stalin, they should not be in that party. They should be in our party. Whenever somebody in the leadership writes something, prints it, puts it out to the public, that is not their own work. They have not done that without a discussion behind the scenes with other leadership. Everything that comes out, in political affairs, which is the party's ideological magazine, is not done by one person. It has to be checked up. 
by others in the party, the leaders, to see if it's ideologically our view, if it's correct. The fact that this hit print tells me that there were other people in 2008 in that party, and it probably was the general secretary who wasn't even called the general secretary. They got rid of that name when Gus Hall left the scene. They called him the chairman now. They try to get away from general secretary. That's a Leninist term. So behind the scenes, there were discussions. They sent up flags to see who salutes the flag. If enough people salute it, they then go a step further, and they'll eventually make it the position of the party. But they never do it without first putting their big toe in the water to see if the toe could stay in the water. If it's not hot, that they had to grab their foot out of the water. This is done in all communist parties that are worth the grain of salt. Second thing, is he the best that they have to offer as the leader of their party? If that's the case, then they are scraping the bottom of the barrel. That's what they're doing. And I believe that's where they're at now. With all their talking, with all their deception that they've changed, they have not changed. The degeneration that has unfortunately happened to that party, which was my party originally, because everything they did, we who joined them supported. They supported hook, line, and sinker, the Soviet Union. And all of those, like me, who supported hook, line, and sinker joined that party. All the other parties on the left were anti-Soviet of one type or another. Some said we supported the Soviet Union until 1953. Stalin died, now we're anti-Soviet. <laughs> they call themselves hojas. They're another group to watch and laugh who want to have a lot of laughs. Then you had the Maoists who were pro-Soviet until Khrushchev came along, and then they became anti-Soviet to the point to the point where in 1970s, they joined forces with fascists like Pinochet in Chile. Pinochet was wined and dined in Peking, if you didn't know this. The guy who killed all the communists in Chile and their bodies were floating in the river, this is the guy that Mao was having dinner with, laughing and drinking and smoking cigars, okay? So they're all anti-Soviet the only one that stayed with the Soviet Union from 1918-1919 was the CP. Soon as Gus died in 2000, they now got rid of that. One of them, Roberta Woods, said, I'm glad I got that albatross off my neck. What albatross, Roberta? The hammer and the sickle. If that was an albatross, why did you stay in the party all these years? She was a paid party functionary. The nickels and dimes of the party members, people like me who took out loans at 19 years old so I could give $500 immediately to Jewish Affairs magazine because I had a fund drive. All the fools like me who gave the money to people to pay Roberta Woods so that she could then say after the counter-revolution won, she could say, I'm glad we got that out of my neck. 
No one put a gun to Roberta Wood's head and all these others to stay in the party. It was a free voluntary group. They could have left. Point I'm making is I'm giving you a personal inside view, personal history of myself, of how we gave money and took out loans from our clubs in order to give to the fund drive. So they have these individuals in the leadership who didn't believe in it anymore, didn't have the guts to tell us they didn't believe anymore. And when Gus was the last of the Mohegans, as we say, the last of the pro-Soviet elements, when he went, that's when the rust, the rot, continued from the head down and to the bottom of the barrel. And that's why you have a Joe Sims there. But the con is still going on, comrades. Communists throughout the world don't know what's going on here. They believe the stuff that they hear from SolidNet whenever someone in the CP says congratulations. So we have a problem. There are so much contradictions that we haven't done tonight, we will do in the coming weeks, of what the leader of the CP is saying. He says things that oppose what he said a month before he says something. So it's just contradiction throughout contradiction. This is a show he's putting on for us. Imagine of all the people in that party that's left, if there's that many left, he's the one that they christened him to be the chair of the party? Ask yourself that question. It's our job as communists, real communists, supporters of the Soviet Union, supporters of Lenin, Stalin, Marx, Engels, all the communists who died in prisons, throughout the world, in Greece, when the counter-revolution in Greece happened after World War II, Chile, the ones that were killed, Indonesia, in 1965, almost a million communists were murdered. And we have these people representing us. We have to have polemics against them, comrade, on the Internet. We've got to tell people who are in that party what's going on in that party. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.